Isaiah 45, and we're going to read 22 and 23. And today we're talking, we've, we're returning to the occasional elements of, uh, to worship, and we're ter- this is the occasional elements of wor- worship. We've come to oaths and vows. And um, I'll primarily talk about oaths, because if you cover oaths, you've covered vows. Vows are made directly to God. Oaths involve people. Um, but, you know, I thought, well, this, I'm not really excited about this. This is not going to be all that interesting, and it's extremely important, um, this study. I've, I've learned a lot. It's extremely important, so pay attention. Okay, here's Isaiah 45, <clears throat> 22 and 23. Look to me be in, and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. And of course, that's an oath to God through Christ. The activities of worship that are authorized but are outside the the regular weekly elements of worship, public worship, and of course there's daily worship, you know, scripture reading, prayer, preaching the word, hearing the word, psalm singing, the sacraments, etc., are defined by the Westminster Standards as, and this is 21.5, religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgivings upon special occasions, which are their which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. Okay, so I still have to cover fastings and thanksgivings. These worship elements are not listed with the regular or ordinary elements because they are only practiced on certain occasions as a special need arises. For example, you get married. Well, you, you have marriage vows. You take oaths to each other. Severe trials, war, drought, famine, disease. That's when you want to fast. A seeking of reformation or sanctification in times of declension or revival, etc. They are to be practiced when extraordinary historical periods of providence make them especially useful for seeking the help of God, or as in the case of thanksgiving, special or unique deliverances or blessings have been bestowed by God. You know, you're you're at war. Somebody attacks your nation. You're at war, and uh, there's a, a battle where they have way more troops and way more supplies, but yet you win. Well, that's an occasion of great thanksgiving. <clears throat> they can be called for by the church, by internet, international councils, general assemblies, synods, or sessions, or by a Christian civil magistrate. Yet being spontaneous or occasional, they cannot be treated in the same manner as a fixed part of religious worship, public worship. In other words, they are voluntary and are practiced as wise on certain occasions, but cannot be fixed. And I say that we can't say, well, we're going to fast every, every Friday, we're not allowed to eat meat. With the Roman Catholic Church took things that were occasional for special occasions, and they made it into a weekly thing. I was raised a Roman Catholic. Uh, we were not allowed to eat meat. Now, they've gotten rid of this, apparently, but we were not allowed to eat meat on Fridays. That, and that goes back to fasting. And, of course, uh, pizza with uh, olives and mushrooms is pretty delicious, so I don't consider that much of a fast. But anyway, <coughs> as certain days and seasons <coughs> excuse me, have been set in stone by Romanist canon law, when they are done, however, they must only be done as required or authorized by sacred scripture. For example, a marriage vow between an eligible man and woman is ethical and good. A real man and a real woman. But a supposed marriage vow between two sodomites is a wicked abomination. Okay, they have certain rules. We're going to look at that. Each of the occasional elements listed merit a careful biblical analysis. Today... Religious oaths and vows. I'm not going to really talk about vows. I'm going to talk about oaths just because oaths covers vows. The, the same rules apply generally. In order to understand why oaths and vows are elements of worship, we need to carefully define each term as is used in Scripture. <clears throat> An oath is a solemn declaration of the truth or promise made to a person or persons 
with an appeal to Yahweh that if, that if the truth is not true or the promise is not fulfilled, God as a witness to the truth or promise will hold the person or persons making the oath accountable. Okay, now a vow, of course, you're making it directly to God. It doesn't involve other people. To take an oath is to swear or declare solemnly in the name of the true God, Yahweh. <clears throat> to swear a person in, in, in a court of law, is to administer a legal oath. The point of swearing an oath is to bolster the truth of what is said or promised by calling down the judgment or wrath of God upon the person or persons because their lie or broken promise is attached to an appeal to God's name. David says that a godly man is one who, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, Psalm 15.4. He, he promises in the name of God. Circumstances change, and the promise is very not good for him at all. But he keeps his promise because he made it in the name of God, and he doesn't want the wrath of God to come upon him. <clears throat> that is, he keeps his promissory oath, even though the circumstances have arisen that render the original oath disadvantageous to him. Projected actions set forth by a promise are supposed to be made somewhat more certain of coming to pass because they are covered by the sanctity of an oath in God's name which carries with it blessings for obedience and curses if the oath is broken. Now, oaths are used in association with court cases to prove the truth of a statement. <clears throat> for example, Exodus 22, 10-11 says, If a man delivers to a neighbor a donkey or ox or sheep or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath to the Lord shall be made between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, or the owner shall, and the owner shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. In other words, somebody's going away on vacation, he wants you to watch their donkey for a while. And the donkey gets sick and die, not to do it any fault of your own. It just happens. It gets sick and die. Uh, but there's no witnesses to it. Well, you make an oath to God, and then you don't have to give the guy a donkey. And if you're lying, of course, God's the one who's going to hold you accountable. <clears throat> Among a godly people, an oath is so serious that the other party must accept the oath as a statement of truth and drop the matter. If a man's willing to make an oath and there's no proof, it's your word against his, you don't know, an oath settles the matter. While it is possible that the one taking the oath could be lying, it's certainly possible, the injured party must trust God to punish him if he is to accept uh, the Lord's justice. And people do lie, and you, you see these situations where it's her, his word against hers, or this guy's word against his, and there are no witnesses. Well, that's when you make an appeal to the Lord to be the judge of the matter. <clears throat> this type of law is the way to settle disputes when there are no independent secondary witnesses. The oath is taken, and God himself, who knew everything, who knows everything, serves as the witness if someone uh, was God-fearing but did not want to take the oath, he would have to restore the lost animal. Okay, in other words, if a person is godly, if a person is a believer and he's tempted to lie because he doesn't want to pay for the guy's donkey, well, the fact that he fears God is enough for him to just simply pay the man to restore the donkey to him. Okay, you, you can see how it applies to a godly people, it's a very useful thing. Now, corporate oaths between people in a body, tribe, nation, or church, and God are often referred to as covenants. After entering all the promised land, all the people with understanding together with the political leaders, and this is from uh, Nehemiah, this is 10, 28, and this is after the captivity, entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe all the commandments of the Lord our God. So they took an oath to be faithful to the covenant law. When it says they entered into a curse, oaths always presuppose a curse for those who disobey the oath. The point is, God sees, God knows the truth, God will judge those who lie, who break the oath. 
That's why it talks about entering into a curse. <clears throat> they took upon themselves a promise to reject the current world system and live in habitual obedience to the word of God. They hardly agreed to suffer a curse if they backslid or rejected God's law. In times of revival, oaths are a source of great joy and corporate progress. Uh, and corporate progress and holiness. In Second Chronicles 15, 12-15, we read this. Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. Okay, that's related to the Old Testament law of uh, regarding apostasy. Okay, that's... Uh, the death penalty for apostasy in Israel. Then they took an oath before the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul. And he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. In other words, the Lord blessed their oath, their covenant. They rejoiced to make a covenant with God to prevent apostasy and maintain the great attainments that had been made in Reformation. Their swearing to God was corporate, public, fervent, sincere, and joyful. It is an honor and blessing to enter into a covenant with God. They are renewing the covenant that had been broken and were drawing closer in practice to their covenant God. Remember, why, were, why was Israel in Babylon? Why was Judah in Babylon? Because they apostatized and became corrupt and were worshiping idols, etc., etc. We can see how an oath is an act of worship here. It's clearly an act of devotion and worship to God. The curse for swearing falsely is especially clear in Numbers 5.21, where a woman accused of unfaithfulness swears her innocence in a special ritual. Okay, the man, uh, and of course the, the, the context of this is a man marries a woman. He thinks she's committed adultery, but he, he can't prove it. He, he thinks she's unfaithful. She, swear, she says, I haven't been unfaithful at all. You're, you're nuts. So this is the, what happens. Then the priest shall put the woman under an oath of the curse, and shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among the people, when the Lord makes you your thigh rot and your belly swell. The woman's acquittal or punishment is solely determined by the Lord who knows the truth of the matter. The Lord knows whether she committed adultery or not. If she, does, if she did not commit adultery and is innocent, there will be no curse. And she will bear children and be a good wife, and the husband has to accept that. But if she's lying, woe be unto her. The Lord will curse her. Now that's obviously something supernatural, and that obviously doesn't apply to today, but it, it gives you a... It shows the, the curse aspect of the oath. And once again, it's a situation where we don't have independent witnesses. His word against her word. Well, this is how you deal with it. And this is obviously supernatural. <clears throat> a biblical oath can only be taken in the name of the true God and is founded squarely on the biblical world and life view. It assumes the existence of an infinite personal God who is transcendent, infinite, omniscient, holy, and righteous. Now, God must be all-knowing and powerful to see and punish broken oaths or covenants. He must be absolutely righteous, a God of truth, faithfulness, and integrity, if he is to faithfully judge oath-breakers who have violated the third and the ninth commandments. The third is, of course, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And if you make an oath, you appeal to the name of the God that you're telling the truth and you're, and you're lying. You're taking the Lord's name in vain, obviously. And of course, the ninth commandment, is, which is not to lie. The third commandment emphasizes that broken oaths will not go unpunished. <clears throat> this is from Exodus 27, Deuteronomy 5.11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. A biblical oath not only assumes that Yahweh is the only true God, 
but it also presupposes loyalty to the true God as God. In Deuteronomy 6.13, this point is emphasized. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, and shall take oaths in his name. Now, if you're an atheist, and you go into a court of law, and you place your hand on the Bible, and you swear to tell the truth, it's meaningless. You don't even believe in God. In fact, you really don't believe there's such a thing as truth if you're an atheist, because everything's in flux. Now, in Egypt, the Pharaoh was considered God. He was the absolute lord of the people, and everyone was to serve him as their master. Because the people of Israel had been set free from state of slavery by Yahweh, they were not to forget their liberation and their allegiance to God as the Lord of the Covenant. He is the source of law and justice, not the state. Therefore, all oath-taking must be in his holy name. To swear by a false god or by the state which claims to be God is a form of idolatry. To swear by Yahweh is a verbal recognition of the true and living God and his attributes. And this point is made especially clear by our text this morning, Isaiah 45, 22-23. Look at me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. Of course, Paul alludes to this in Philippians chapter 2. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. He changes it a little bit, but... Now God, Yahweh, commands all men everywhere, Acts 17.30, to to the farthest ends of the planet Earth, to believe in Christ, John 3.16, confess him as Lord, Romans 10.9-11 and Philippians 2.11, and bow the knee to him as King and Lord over all, Philippians 2.9-10. That a true love and devotion toward Yahweh will occur is noted by bowing the knee and taking an oath of faith and complete submission to the Lord God of Israel. Once again, can we not see how clearly this is an act of worship, taking an oath? We are saved by the blood and righteousness of Christ in order to take an oath of allegiance to the one and only true and living God. This is a religious act where we acknowledge that our precious Lord's salvation has brought us into a covenant relationship to God. And I don't, didn't put this in here, but what is our covenant relationship to God repeatedly compared to in Scripture? The marriage covenant. Christ, we are the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, Revelation 20, 21, and many passages in the Old Testament. By taking the oath, we promise to love, honor, obey, and worship the true God through Christ. In addition, we knowingly place ourselves under Yahweh's special covenantal sanctions if we seriously backslide or apostatize. To take an oath to God through Christ involves a recognition that there is only one living and true God, and there is no authority above God. Yahweh is the source of true meaning of truth, meaning, and ethics. Jesus is the only way of salvation, and we recognize the full inspiration and authority of Scripture. That is special revelation. That's our authority. God is our authority. Now, since Yahweh is the absolute sovereign Lord, creator, sustainer, ruler, judge, etc., and Jesus is the divine human mediator, has been given all authority over heaven and earth due to his redemptive obedience, Matthew 28, 8, 28, 18 and following, Acts 17, 30 to 31, Romans 1, 4, Ephesians 1, 7 and 19 through 23, Philippians 2, 9 to 11, etc. The true worship of God requires an oath of total submission, loyalty, service, and obedience. You remember uh, Exodus 19. They've been delivered from Egypt. They've been delivered from slavery to idolatry and to the Pharaoh statism. God gives them the Ten Commandments. He speaks them verbally. And what do the people do? All that the Lord has said we shall do. They covenant with Yahweh, and of course, that'll be repeated. This is true both individually and corporately. Jesus is Lord over individuals as well as the state, church, schools, businesses, homes, and everything else. 
He is Lord over all. And there's no doubt about that. We just sang Psalm 2. There's no doubt about that. Psalm 110, there's no doubt about that. This informs us that oath-taking by nature is always a religious act. Those who believe in Christ align themselves with God's law order and seek to habitually conform themselves to the requirements of the covenant, which is the purpose of sanctification both individually and corporately. The kingdom of God establishes a godly, righteous community and law order. Since Yahweh alone is God, and beside him there is no other, Isaiah 45, 22, all forms of unbelieving, pagan, atheistic swearing are by nature superstitious, illicit, and satanic. These secular humanists that run our government and the courts and so forth, and they have people put their, you know, due to our Christian tradition, they put their hand on the Bible, which I believe is kind of super, you don't need to put your hand on the Bible, you just, if you swear to God, it's the God of the Bible. <clears throat> Such swearing is done in contempt of God and his revealed truth. In secular society, it is a, secular society, it is a meaningless ritual, only practiced because of traditions from a Christian past. For in secular humanistic states, autonomous man is the source of law, truth, and justice. And of course, with quotation marks around it, because they don't really, if you, if you believe in an evolutionary, macroevolutionary universe, there is no such thing as truth. In a changing universe, everything is in flux. There is no fixed truth. There, is no fi there are no fixed ethics. It's all arbitrary. For unbelieving and apostate people, swearing to Yahweh has been replaced by a profanity against God. They're taking the Lord's name in vain. And such men have aligned themselves to Satan. They use Jesus or God's name in a hostile, insulting, perverted sense. Mixed with profanity related to sexual practices and excrement. That's where we get this word swearing. You know, swearing in the bad sense. Blankety blank this, blankety blank that. They seek power from below. In the rejection of God, they unwittingly seek power from below in the negative, perverted, disgusting realm of darkness. Biblical swearing is an act of faith, devotion, allegiance. Unbiblical swearing is an act of hatred, contempt, perversion, idolatry. It denies the true God is ultimate and transcendent. And it ultimately is rebellion. Human autonomy from God and his word. Now, biblical oath-taking is very important for a well-ordered society. <clears throat> Oaths are taken by political officers, ministers, elders, husbands and wives, those who testify in a court of law, in various contractual situations. Now, while it is true that the Ninth Commandment requires honesty and truth, in all speech and written documents, the entrance of sin into the world and man's sinful nature makes oaths necessary so that men see that lying, perjury, heresy, and propaganda are offenses not just against man, but against God, who is truth itself. They are offenses that guarantee the judgment of God. See, for example, Exodus 20, verse 7. Western societies that have apostatized from the faith, and we're talking about all of Europe, Russia, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and adopted a secular humanistic worldview, atheistic naturalism, or macroevolution. And by the way, just a side note, Hubble's telescope, you know, the not Hubble, what's the new one called? that just came out a couple months ago. Well, they just have the biggest telescope that's way bigger and more powerful than Hubble has already disproved the Big Bang Theory that the universe evolved. They found galaxies that are just as big or bigger and just as developed as ours way, 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 way back when they're not, they're not supposed to be any galaxies. And it's thrown their whole worldview into crisis because they believe galaxies take you know, billions and billions of years to form. And here they are, or hundreds of millions of years to form, and here they are fully developed, way, way, way back at the supposed near the beginning of 
of time near the beginning of the supposed Big Bang or whatever you want to call it. So science, if you look at science through Christian worldview, through Christian glasses, science always proves creationism. It always proves that the true God created the universe. <clears throat> They've adopted a secular humanistic worldview, but still have oaths. Without faith in God, they have become increasingly irrelevant. Where there is no regard for truth, when men can subscribe to oaths and vows with no intention of abiding by their terms, then social anarchy and degeneration ensues. Where there is no fear of God, then the sanctity of oaths and vows disappears and men shift the foundations of society from the truth to the lie. And that's exactly what's occurring in the United States of America. Marriage vows are not taken seriously by most people. 50% of marriages ended divorce. And we're not counting the many, many percentages above that that commit adultery and are unfaithful but don't get divorced. In Europe, it's in Italy, for example, the number of men that commit adultery is like 90% or something. It's just mind-boggling. And in the African-American communities, the ghettos, uh, the rates of adultery are extremely high. And uh, we, I lived in a ghetto. I went to seminary in a ghetto in West Philadelphia. And then I, when I rented a house, I was having a house being built in Michigan. I was planning a church in the 90s. And we lived in a, an African-American neighborhood. And... Uh, I did a bunch of evangelism, so I got to know all these people within a radius of like six blocks, and it was all these African American women that were divorced. Every one of them, there was there were there was only one couple, and he he played for the Detroit Pistons. <laughs> there was only one couple in that giant neighborhood where it wasn't black divorced women. So marriage vows aren't taken seriously, and the secular state concurs by passing no fault divorce laws. Politicians swear to uphold the Constitution while properly, purposely seeking to get around it and to destroy the Constitution. The Democratic Party hates our Constitution. They don't believe in the Constitution. They appeal to them when it suits them, but they don't believe in the Constitution. They want to change laws and do arbitrary things all, as long as it helps their power. Churchmen swear to uphold their standards, yet openly teach and practice many things contrary, contrary to their standards. Things are so bad that denominations adopt... Uh, admit they practice what's called loose subscriptionism. In other words, you swear to uphold the standards only in a very general way, so you can break a bunch of the standards. Professing Christians take oath of church membership, yet often break them the moment it is convenient. And such people are rarely disciplined, because oath-breaking has become the norm. It's very common we, in my history, uh, my situations when I was on sessions, uh, where a woman would commit adultery or a man would commit adultery. And in order to flee discipline, they would just go join another church. And we were going to discipline a woman who had committed adultery and left her. And, and we were told we couldn't discipline her because denominations today are so corrupt. People do not believe that there are real consequences to oath-breaking because of a lack of faith in the word of God. Yet to despise, abuse, and profane the oath is an offense which denies the validity of all oaths, of all order, law and order, of all courts and offices. It is an act of anarchy and revolution. And that's what we're experiencing today. What is the point of swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth upon the threat of a curse from God if there is no infinite personal God who is the source of moral law, meaning, and justice? And, you know, I watch these atheist knuckleheads on YouTube uh, who are very popular, extremely popular, because people who are living in sin, who are going to go to hell, like to have people confirm their unbelief and their rebellion against God. And their arguments are absolutely stupid and arbitrary. They're totally stupid and arbitrary. You know, I really wish Greg Bonson was alive to debate these knuckleheads. In our modern secular society, oaths are largely empty rituals. The anti-Christian state creates its own fiat laws. And consequently, only, only those who offend the state are held to account for oath-breaking. If you're a liberal Democrat, you can lie, chill, steal, steal, break oaths, break the law, left and right. Nothing happens. But if you're a Republican, especially a conservative, they're going to go after you and they're going to throw you in jail. It's all arbitrary. It's all based on power. It's, it's based on arbitrary law, status law. 
because modern status politicians see themselves as the ultimate authority, not the true God who created the heavens and the earth. They deny the validity of an authority above mankind and hold to a political and ethical intolerance. Their ethics is autonomous, arbitrary, evolving, situational, man-determined. So, one decade, Biden says, marriage is between a man and a woman. I'm totally opposed to sodomite marriage. He would say homosexual marriage or whatever. Then, five years later, if you're opposed to homosexual marriage, you're evil. True oath-taking involves a sincere, hearty obedience to the first commandment. Those who swear to God according to scripture sub submit every sphere of life to Yahweh's law word. Those who reject the Lord can only take his name in vain, for they trample underfoot the first commandment and thus develop societies and cultures at war with Christ and alienated from his perfect moral law. As the Christian worldview fades into oblivion, totalitarianism and anarchism rear their satanic heads. That guy in New York City, what is he, attorney general, whatever you call him, he's the head, the head enforcer of the law, he let a murderer off. The guy committed murder. He was a black man murdering a black woman with witnesses. He let a black murderer off. He dropped the charges, but he's going after Trump for something that happened many years ago. And While corrupt, uh, <laughs> it's nothing compared to murder. The Christian oath to God through Christ involves a commitment to stand up for biblical righteousness against evil. It is why true Christians are a salt and light to society. And the importance and comprehensive application of biblical oaths can be observed in the Westminster Larder Catechism's interpretation of the Third Commandment. Not all this applies directly to oaths, but a lot of it does. Question 112. What is required in the Third Commandment? The Third Commandment requires that the name of God, His titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing. <clears throat> By a holy profession, an answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. Question 113. What are the sins forbidden in the third commandment? The sins forbidden in the third commandment are not using of God's name as, as is required, the abuse of it in ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning, or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works by blasphemy, perjury, all sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots, violating of our, uh, violating of our oaths and vows, if lawful, and fulfilling them, uh, if above things unlawful, murmuring, quarreling at, curious prying into and misapplying of God's decrees and providences, misinterpreting, misapplying, or any way perverting the word or any part of it to pervade jests, curious or unprofitable questions, vain janglings, or the maintaining of false doctrines, abusing it, the creatures, or anything contained under the name of God to charms or sinful lusts and practices, the maligning, scorning, reviling, or any wise opposing of God's truth, grace, and ways, making profession of religion in hypocrisy, or for sinister ends, being ashamed of it or ashamed to it by, un by unconforming, unwise, unfruitful, and otherwise walking or backsliding from it. Now it is interesting and noteworthy that the first assault against God recorded in the scripture is Satan's attack on God's word. The devil sought to cast doubt on the truth of God's word through false interpretation. Hasn't God indeed said? Genesis 3.1. In other words, you must, not, you must have heard it wrong or interpreted it wrong. Then second, same, Satan explicitly accused God of being a liar. You will not surely die. Genesis 3.4. Our whole written basis for attaining salvation and covenanting with God is found in special revelation. We learn that Yahweh has infallibly revealed himself and that we can hardly trust all of his promises. All the covenants made with God's people are based on promises made by God. The Lord assured Abraham that what he promised would certainly come to pass by taking an oath, Genesis 15, 18. So we see that oaths actually are very, very important. I thought, well, it's kind of a boring topic, and it's, it's not a boring topic at all.
Now, we, this raises the question. We have to bring this up. Did Jesus abolish the use of oaths? A number of press, professing Christians, early, the early church fathers, most of the early church fathers, in fact, the Anabaptists during the Reformation, they became the Baptists, and of course they were helped by imitating the Reformed churches, some of them. Quakers, the Society of Friends, and of course Brethren, reject the use of oaths based on, based on Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is. Matthew five thirty four to 37 But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. James repeats our Lord's teaching almost verbatim. This is James 5.12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or any other, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. Now, although these passages taken uh, out of the overall context of Scripture appear to abolish oaths, if you read them in isolation, it would appear to abolish oaths uh, in the New Covenant era, they really only condemn the ungodly, superstitious, dishonest oath-making common among the scribes, Pharisees, and Jews in Jesus' day. Israel at that time. There are a number of reasons why a biblical use of oath is good, wise, and lawful. First, and this is important, whenever you interpret scripture, what is the context? What's going on here? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord does not set up an antithesis to the Old Testament law, which is what dispensationalists say, but to the scribes and Pharisees' additions and perversions of the law. He's not refuting the Old Testament law, he's refuting perversions of the law. It would be absurd for Jesus to say that he did not come to destroy the law, that not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away, that is a moral law, that his disciples must obey even the least of the commandments, and their personal righteousness or obedience to the law must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and then turn right around and start abrogating moral laws. Okay, all the laws discussed in the Sermon on the Mount are moral laws, every single one of them. There's no, there's no uh, ceremonial laws discussed. It's all moral laws. Remember, biblical oath-taking is directly related to the Third and Ninth Commandments. God's law defined what an oath was, and the use of godly oaths preceded the giving of the moral law. Abraham confirmed his promises to the king of Sodom and to Abimelech with an oath. Genesis 14, 22 to 24. Genesis 21, 23 and 24. He required his servant to take an oath at a crucial time. Genesis 24, 3 and 9. He wants to make sure his son marries a godly woman. And that was a very critical matter. Isaac, Genesis 26.31, Jacob, Genesis 31.53, made oaths as well. After the giving of the law, godly oaths were made by the leaders of the congregation of Israel, Joshua 9.15, the children of Israel, Judges 21.5, and notable saints, Ruth 116 to 2 Samuel 15.21, 1 Kings 18.10, that's Elijah, 2 Chronicles 15.14, Asa the king, and all of Judah, when they covenanted. Oath-taking is connected to national revivals of the true religion where God's covenant with Israel is renewed. So it's obviously something godly, and it's connected to the Ten Commandments, which is moral law. God does not abrogate moral law. Moral law is either based on his nature and character, which we would call natural law, and then, or it is based on his commands that are universal, things like incest. Second, Jesus and the apostles had no problem making oaths after the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So he wouldn't contradict himself, would he? When our Lord appeared before the Sanhedrin, he openly declared himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God, after he was placed under an oath. Matthew 26, 63-64. He obviously regarded the use of an oath at a trial as legitimate. In Galatians 1.20, Paul takes an oath before God as to the truth of the things he writes. I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. That's an oath. He's appealing to God. He also takes oaths in 2 Corinthians 1.23 and Philippians 1.8. Surely Paul, writing by divine inspiration, would not take oaths as they had been forbidden under all circumstances by Christ. He's an apostle. He's inspired. The author of Hebrews bases an argument about God's faithfulness in making an oath to Abraham on the fact that lawful oaths between men confirm the truth 
and set aside all dispute about the thing or things promised. Here's Hebrews 6.16. For indeed, men swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. To swear by God who never lies, First Timothy, uh, Timothy 1.2, or in other words, to call God to witness that one is speaking the truth and acting honorably is the highest affirmation of trustworthiness that a man can make. If Jesus had forbidden all oaths is wrong, such an argument would be completely inappropriate. Therefore, given the testimony of Scripture, oath-making is lawful as long as it is not based on human tradition or abuse. The problem was the abuse of oaths by the Jews, and we'll look at that in a second. Because of man's fall into sin and his corrupt tendency to lie, oaths are necessary on certain occasions to keep the temptation to dishonesty in check by adding seriousness, authority, solemnity, and a greater threat of judgment by God. Why do you think oaths are part of the marriage? Why, why do you think people take marriage vows? Now, I know that modern marriage vows have been altered. <laughs> They've been altered where they get rid of all that stuff out of it. All the Christian stuff is eliminated now because people get married for a while and then they get sick of this or that and they leave. Third, when making exceptionally strong statements, it was not uncommon among Hebrews to speak in an absolute manner with an understanding that the audience would already know that there are certain qualifications. It's a Hebraistic way of speaking. The abuses of the Jews with regard to oaths were so serious that our Lord is essentially teaching that if one is going to use oaths in such a profane, trivial, perverted manner, it is better to avoid oaths altogether. You know, they were swearing by this, they were swearing by that, they were swearing, they were swearing by all these things that were not God, and they did so, we're told, by Jesus, in order to get out of the promise. They wanted to get out of it. One should not make grandiose promises that one does not intend to keep, but should simply say yes or no. The rabbis had developed a whole system of different formulas that went beyond Scripture. They were swearing by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, the temple, the gold of the, of the temple, and even on their own head. None of this came from God's word. It all came by way of human traditions. If we look at Old Testament oaths, men would swear by God, Genesis 21, 23, or by the Lord, Genesis 24, 3, Numbers 32, 1 Samuel 24, 21, 2 Samuel 19, 7, by Jehovah's name, Leviticus 19, 12, Deuteronomy 6, 13, and 10, 20, to the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 23, 21, to the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 19, 18. Even God, because he could swear by no one greater, swore by himself, Hebrews 6, 13, see Genesis 22, 16, Isaiah 45, 23, and Amos 6, 8, and Ezekiel 17, 19, and Jeremiah 44, 26. In some instances, the appeal to God is there, but it is more indirect. For example, in Jacob's covenant with Laban, the patriarch says, and this is from um, Genesis 31, 50, although no, no man is with us, God, see, God is witness between you and me. God knows what we're doing here. A man who is concerned to demonstrate the truthfulness and sincerity of a statement could also use the formula as the Lord lives. 1 Samuel 14, 39, 19, 6, 20, verse 3, 2 Samuel 15, 21. The common Jewish form of swearing in Jesus' day was superstitious. In other words, it was not commanded or authorized by the word of God. All oaths that are not made to the true and living God are by nature idolatrous. They're superstition. In fact, the underlying purpose of the different formulas in the matter of oaths was to be able to make promises that could be broken. According to the teaching of the ancient rabbis, swearing by heaven and earth meant to swear by the hosts of heaven and the hosts of earth. Mishnah, Sebu'at, uh, C4, section 13. The Jewish writer Philo says that it refers to the sun, stars, and the whole earth. Since the Jews regarded these things as part of the created realm and not God himself, they did not look upon such a promise as a binding oath. In other words, they made an oath that they knew they could break. And that is very dishonest. It's very deceptive. They would also swear by Jerusalem because it was the holy city. In the uh, Gemara we read, He that says as Jerusalem does not say anything till he has made his vow concerning a thing which is offered up in Jerusalem. And... Uh, the point there is you could make a promise and then just not make an offering and then your promise, you could break it. And you, you know the Sermon on the Mount. They were getting out of taking care of their parents. They were getting out of doing all these things. 
you know, people have this attitude that the Jews were really righteous. No, they weren't. They weren't righteous. They had an outward piety, but they were total hypocrites. They were phonies. They didn't take care of their parents. They weren't honest. In the thinking of the scribes and Pharisees, there were different degrees of oaths. An oath sworn to the Lord was the highest form of oath and must be kept. But there were all sorts of lesser oaths that could be broken, if necessary, or expedient. As with most religious traditions, this gave the religious leaders greater power over others. Today, in corrupt Presbyterianism, with loose subscriptionism, what does it do? The Westminster Standards aren't the standard of the church. It's the, the decision of the synod or court that is the standard, not really the standards. They give themselves more power by corruption. With their sophisticated rabbinic casuistry, they could break these promises all the while thinking they had not violated the Ninth Commandment. Thus, in their perverted logics, oaths which were designed to increase the likelihood of truth-telling and faithfulness became instruments of dishonesty and fraud. Oaths which were supposed to add solemnity and guarantee reliability became flippant, profane, hypocritical, trivial. It's like a child, you know, cross my hope, hope, hope to die, that kind of nonsense. It's just all trivial nonsense. By making oaths into a sort of game like a child who believes it's okay to, when he crosses his fingers behind his back to lie, the scribes and Pharisees became like the devil and caused all promises to be called into question. The scribes and the Pharisees will also, uh, would also um, say oaths for dramatic effect, to make an impression, to spice up daily conversation. Thus they were using oaths all the time for minor issues that did not merit the seriousness of an oath. Consequently, they were taking God's name in vain. Oaths are not for trivial things. Oaths are for critical things like marriage or a church covenant. If we look at God's holy law, oaths, vows, and covenants were serious affairs that were not to be entered into lightly. Consequently, oaths were actually quite rare. Oaths were used in civil courts, in matters of theft, Exodus 22.10 and 11, Leviticus 6.3, and as we noted, suspicion of adultery, Numbers 5.11-28. They were used in important business transactions and crucial duties. For example, when Abraham sent out his chief servant to, to find a bride for Isaac, he made him swear not to get a wife from the Canaanites, but rather from his own family, Genesis 24.3-4. What's more important than finding a godly maid? The rare serious oath-taking under the law had been replaced by the rabbis with glib, frivolous oath-taking similar to what one hears today among pagan children. Oath-taking is rare, but it is necessary for very serious matters. The cure for the pharisaical abuse of oaths is not to eliminate the useful, good, biblical use of oaths, but rather to speak the truth in love at all times. Ephesians 4.12 and 25, 2 Corinthians 13.8 without equivocations and to stop using oaths for things that do not merit them. And I think the dishonesty, for example, the Federal Vision guys, like Doug Wilson's book, they deliberately write, they write theology in a very uh, equivocal way so they can teach heresy and deny it. It's very deceptive. Ironically, it is often the people who are the most dishonest who multiply oaths for they help induce people to believe their lies. Those who swear to God yet who really reject his attributes and authority and thus intend to deceive, insult, and mock intended to see they insult and mock the living God, the true God. They are placing themselves in a position where the wrath of God is inevitable. And there's probably no better summary of the matter than the Westminster Confession 22.2, which says, To swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear by any other thing, is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet, as in matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old. So a lawful oath being opposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. Now, biblical oath-taking is crucial to a godly society. Oaths are required for the family, the church, and the state. Not only... Do around about half of all people, we're talking about the United States, break their wedding vows. If you include people who commit adultery but don't get divorced, it's over half. But in our largely apostate era, people often write their own vows uh, that do not require lifelong fidelity. 
you know, these hippie vows. I promise to smoke pot and have fun. I promise to go to the beach every year, you know, instead of things that are important. A society full of broken families is a society in spiritual and moral decline. The problem of the black community, and we're talking about the ghettos, it's not white racism. It's the breakup of the family, which has been supported by a state that pays people to get to not be married and fornicate like beasts. And that goes for white families, any family where the where the father's not at home, uh, the crime rate has a significant increase, and they're much more likely to be unfaithful in the next generation. I worked, I lived and worked among blacks when I when I, I went to seminary in ghetto. I, I worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Everybody there, except for like one or other one other person in my department, they were all black. And every single one of those guys, and some of them went to church. Every single one of them had more than one mistress. They were habitually and regularly committing adultery. And I would witness to these guys, and I even had a guy say to me, but what you say is absolutely true. I, I, it's real. But then he said, but I, I can't, I just can't go with that because I, I have all these mistresses and I'm having so much fun, I can't stop committing adultery. In other words, I refuse to repent. A society full of broken families is in spiritual and moral decline. Godly, Christ-loving families are the foundation of Christian civilization. Why do you have crummy churches? People vote for crummy pastors and elders. Why do you have evil satanic politicians in power like we have now? People vote for them. Oaths are crucial for a righteous civil government. For a godly constitutional republic is dependent on people voting based on honest, accurate information. In addition, if men do... Uh, do not rule according to a biblical standard because they lied to get elected and refused to keep their oath to enforcing God's unchanging absolute moral law, a society will eventually descend into anarchy and tyranny. That's why, of course, we need to have a Christian American. We need to have politicians have to be a member of a Bible-believing church before they can be elected to office. That has to occur. The more that America has drifted away from its Christian roots, the more corrupt, dishonest, and evil politicians have become. Politics without loyalty to the true God and his moral law is satanic and blasphemous. Biden and all these people in his administration, those people are satanic to the core. A civil order based on oath-breaking lies and rank propaganda is antinomian and ripe for judgment. These people were elected. Now, I think there was a lot of cheating going on, but he won. He, he was elected. And when the judgment comes, because the guy's a total Satanist, a thief, a liar, uh, the people deserve their judgment. Now, the people who didn't vote for him, uh, they're going to suffer too, unfortunately, because of the covenant headship of the civil magistrate over a nation. The whole nation suffers. The Democrats who are explicitly anti-Bible, anti-Christ, anti-moral law are turning society into an anarchistic hell. Look at Portland, Portland, San Francisco, New York City, Seattle. Stores that have been in, uh, in Portland for a whole generation, they're closing right and left because there's so much theft, and they're not prosecuting the theft. It's antinomian to the core. God calls them to repentance, Leviticus 19, 12, and 15. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. It's exactly the opposite of this policy of equity, which steals from people who are productive and honest in, in, in economic matters, at least they should be, to give to people who are poor. And in this nation, if you're poor, it's your own fault. There's job, I can get a job in five minutes. Oath-taking is especially crucial for a healthy church for a number of reasons. First, it is a religious basis for a covenant of church membership. When a person joins himself to a legitimate Bible-believing church, he makes a public oath before God and the local body of believers not only to walk in a manner that is covenantally faithful, but also to confess and uphold the doctrinal attainments of the Protestant Reformation. 
And if your church doesn't have that kind of vow of church membership, then your church is crappy, bad. In more godly times, people were required to learn and confess the Westminster Standards or on the continent the three forms of unity. Because, of all, because all church members are still sinners and must fight against the sinful flesh, there must be a strong commitment to love, uh, love one another and work for each other's edification, not destruction. In the passages from Corinthians, I forgot to look it up. If church members understood this teaching and obeyed it, gossiping, slander, and working to destroy others in the church would not, would not be a problem at all. But it is a serious problem. Gossip is, even among elders, gossip is a serious problem. I know elders, that that's all they want to do. I, there were prayer meetings I, I, I quit attending because they were gossip meetings. They would spend an hour gossiping before they prayed. Second, oaths, biblically applied, are supposed to help churches maintain godliness and doctrinal integrity. Ministers and elders are supposed to swear to uphold certain doctrinal standard. If they do not believe in that standard, they are not qualified to serve as shepherds or overseers of God's flock. When men are allowed to swear to a standard with crossed fingers, or only in a, way, in a very general manner, with a number of exceptions, doctrinal integrity will, over time, decline. That's a fact. It results in declension by hundreds of qualifications. And all we need to do is look at the history of the mainline denominations where they declined and completely apostatized over time through this process. If we don't learn from history, we're fools. We see the importance of honest, unequivocal, unambiguous oath-taking in church courts. Even a number of conservative Bible-believing Presbyterian bodies today are in the midst of decline due to their lax concept of oath-taking. The original Presbyterians, the Covenanters, and the Puritans would not be welcome in almost all conservative Presbyterian seminaries, colleges, and churches today. I don't know of one seminary, and I'm including Joel Beakey's, he calls it a Puritan seminary, he's not a Puritan at all. They celebrate Holy Days, and he's, in, uh, he's covenanted with covenant breakers in the OPC and the PCA. There's not one seminary in the United States who would want John Knox teaching there, or George Gillespie, or Samuel Rutherford. They would not be welcome, because those guys wouldn't tolerate Christmas. They wouldn't tolerate Easter. They wouldn't tolerate organs, which they considered as, as wicked as burning incense. And they wouldn't tolerate singing man-made man hymns, which are unauthorized. They wouldn't be tolerated for one minute. Third, and we'll end with this because I've run out of time. Public corporate oath-taking or covenanting is crucial for the advancement and upholding of reformation and revival for both church and state. The original Presbyterians of the first and second Reformation periods in Scotland recognized, based largely on what the righteous kings of Judah did in times of Reformation, Asa, Jehoiada the priest, Hezekiah, and Josiah, that entering into a solemn covenant to bind everyone in the church and Christian state to adhere to, uphold, defend, and protect the, spir <coughs> excuse me, the spiritual, moral, and doctrinal attainments of the Reformation was an excellent practice for corporate sanctification. They wisely recognized that due to the sinful flesh, there was a historical tendency for a confessing people to backslide, decline, and even apostatize over time. Just look at the history of Israel. Look at the history of the Christian church. Although the Bible requires obedience and doctrinal integrity of all Christians, a covenant adds the further obligation of an oath, indicating greater dedication to the cause of Christ and the true religion. And this biblical godly oath has a descending obligation on future generations. We want to preserve the truth for our children and our grandchildren. They recognized the great importance of the Reformation against popery and prelacy and did everything they could from a biblical perspective to maintain those precious attainments and pass them on to future generations. Now, due to declension, national ecclesiastical covenants have fallen out of favor and today are largely forgotten. Nobody believes in covenant anymore except for a few people in the RPCNA, a few people in the Free Church of Scotland continuing, very few, and the Steelites. That's it that I know of. I'm, there may be people out there. I'm sure there's people in Brazil and other people I don't know about. The reason for the sad state of affairs is obvious. A church in decline that is departed from previous covenant attainments 
is not in a position, either doctrinally or morally, to swear to uphold the prior attainments. If they did, they'd have to admit they've declined and repent. And they don't want to repent. They have no intention of repenting. In fact, the decline, the perversion, has been incorporated into their standards. You know, the, 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 the idea that Christ is king over the state and that a state has a moral obligation to bow the knee to Christ. That's been rejected by the change in the Westminster Standards that is held by the OPC and the PCA. Pluralism. The idea that God accepts idolatry and we should accept idolatry. That's insanity. A man who is unfaithful to his wife is not in a position to rededicate himself to his marriage vows. And that's the problem with the churches today. We have to get back to covenanting. Oaths and vows are crucial. And what's going on today, because our society no longer is following the Bible or following Christ, they still, t they still are taking a Christian oath in courts. Politicians still take Christian oaths. And they don't believe in it. It's all a lie. It's all a sham. They're blasphemers. They're wicked. So we need to get back to the Bible and bow the knee to Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your teaching on oaths and vows. We're just amazed, Lord, how it's a blessed thing once we understand it. And it's something we need to do corporately. And we pray, Lord, for reformation. Our land is so wicked now. If it does not repent, we know your judgment will fall. We're already in, under some judgment, but we haven't seen anything yet if they don't repent. So, Lord, help us to be obedient to your dear son, Jesus Christ. Obey his word and thought, word, and deed to bow the knee to him in everything. Place him first in everything. In Jesus' name, amen.